Welcome to Future Forecast, the podcast where we discuss leadership, technology, and sustainability with some of the most influential leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. We explore their insights into some of the most exciting trends and topics of our time and learn from their personal experiences. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness, and today we'll be talking about a Chinese perspective on innovation, technology, and entrepreneurship. We are talking to Bessie Lee, a rock star within the marketing, advertising, and startup arena. Lee headed Group M in China for seven years before transitioning to becoming the CEO of WPP China, a creative transformation company, where she managed over 14,000 employees and generated over $1 billion in annual revenue. Still, she felt like she could do more. Within Link, her new entrepreneurial endeavor now allows her to utilize her deep understanding of the Chinese market while helping revolutionize media technology along the way. Welcome, Bessie. We're so happy that you wanted to join us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, that was a fantastic introduction. Thank good. you so much. Did I, did I cover your <laughs> yes, life story? Yeah, I very, feel like... very nicely put as well. Okay, good. <laughs> um, so we like to uh, start the podcast with giving the listeners a little bit kind of a personal feeling of what your morning routine looks like. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, uh, my morning routine started very early, probably six or seven o'clock in, in the morning. But I think that's the usual like, for everybody. But the th- first thing I would do instead of you know, brushing my teeth and wash up is really to pick up my phone. Uh, that's very common among Chinese. And the th- first thing after picking up my phone is to check WeChat. Yeah. So, like, this is the largest social media uh, platform in China with one billion people, you know, monthly active users. But it's it's more than social media. I mean, we, we do pretty much everything on this super app. So transferring money, checking up, you know, whether the taxi I put book was, you know, will arrive on time. Trans, you know, um, uh, the stuff that I book online or bought online will be delivered today. Weather government services, you name it. It's pretty much, you know, your everyday, maybe five to eight you commonly use app function are all in the same app and we don't have to switch back and forth. So that's pretty much what I normally will start the day by checking my WeChat. You get everything in one app. And we are going to be talking a little bit about uh, WeChat afterwards because it's a fascinating sure. app. Hmm. Uh, and I know that it's it's kind of like your, your second hand in, in China. But... Um, hmm. Let's uh, let's dive in because the Chinese tech market it's at the center of attention of the world mm-hmm. uh, and everyone is looking at the incredible and unmet speed of innovation coming from <laughs> your country. Now we're going to dive into that shortly, but first I want to ask you a little bit about your own career because mm-hmm. in 2013 you became the CEO of uh, WPP China, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, obviously you did uh, a great job there, and you managed a lot of people. But then you stayed in that role until 2017 when you left. Mm-hmm. Now, tell me why? Why did you want to leave? What was it? Uh, what was it with li- within Link that you started? Right, that yeah. uh, that drove you to uh, to go into to new career paths. Well, I think by the time I left WPP in 2017, I was with the group for 27 years already. Um, it was a very successful group and with a very established model. But I felt that I, there's there's I feel my calling was in the in the technology world because WPP is successful and they have many more other Bessie or even better Bessie in their talent pool. But if you look out to the marketing technology startups in China, they've got fantastic idea, fantastic technology, but what they don't have is people like myself and my partners, 20 some plus years of experience and insights into the market to sort of complement what these young startups are doing. So I just decided that maybe there's a market for strategic investors and incubators like me and my partners 
that we manage companies before. We have insights of where the company or where the market is going. We have connections to clients and agency who were in need and desperate need for technology breakthrough. Maybe we can be that bridge in the middle. So we raise a little small fund. So we invest money to help the startup make that first step. But we also use leverage our uh, uh, you know you know assets that we built over thirty years to guide them, to facilitate potential commercial partnership, to help them find money to sustain their business. And I think there is a shortage of such investors and incubators in the market. So I compare. Um, I only have twenty four hours a day. Where will be the best use of my time mm. at my career stage or life stage? I just started, decided that uh, WPB is a huge company. They've got great talent pool. They don't need me. But probably the startup, hungrier startup, already need people like myself and, 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 and my core partners to help them. So I just decided to go. And I mean, on that note, you are then working with with startups every single day, and mm. obviously you have your pulse on like the the biggest tech trends in in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it seems like China is a lot further. I mean, we know this already, but a lot further ahead in terms of AI than most other countries. Mm. Uh, and considering you uh, produce about twenty percent of the data in the world, maybe that's not so uh, odd. But in your view, what are the biggest technology trends uh, in China in twenty nineteen? Um, artificial intelligence is at the core of the central leadership's priority for the company's future development. And I think if you look at the history of Chinese, uh, the, the modern China's uh, development, our AI probably is the first time that China is able to be level-headed with the other Western countries at the very beginning. In actually, in, in a lot of the, the sort of the country development, China still lag behind. But I think AI provided that opportunities. I think the central government understood that. So that's why in 2017, the state council of the central government has published a sort of an overarching strategic paper that sets the direction, sets the tone and manner of the AI development for the country. And that paper has is more than just a slogan. It's got specific KPIs the government wants to be measured on. Uh, by the year of 2020, 2025, and 2030. And that paper and that direction said that in that paper, it was then cascaded down to every level of the you know, political hierarchy, provincial level, city level, county level, village level. Every single politi- uh, uh, administrative district in all provinces are fighting for artificial intelligence startup to register in their district. They will come up with uh, government guidance fund to help them start. I, like I said, that first step. And we already have a very active, um, you know, sort of a commercial or private investment sectors. So those sectors, once they know that AI is the national direction, they just pour money into the AI sector to help even, you know, bigger, uh, faster growth for those companies. And the Chinese consumers are very embracing. They they love seeing new stuff and like to go out and try new stuff. Um, I mean, in my speech, I would just give an example of a hot pot restaurant in China, in Beijing, using six robots out there in the restaurant on the restaurant floor delivering food to people and in the back kitchen hot pot is uh, something that you cook at your table by the customers so the the kitchen really is just ingredient assortment so they they've used i don't know 20 maybe or 30 robotic arms to pick out the ingredients that the customers order from their table send it over to the robots and robot took it to the rest to the to the to the tables the consumers and the consumers love it and there may be glitches, you know, but 
it's okay because you know that when they first came out, it's not gonna be hundred percent right. But that's the beauty about the how Chinese consumers embrace these innovations. So it gave the startup or technology companies, I guess, it encouraged them to come out and try, introduce new products, introduce new services. We would love to try it, and we will give you the feedbacks. You know, if we hated it, we'll let you know we hated it. But if we love it, we love it. But it, the thing is, once you put your market uh, products and services out there in the market, test it among real consumers. You get real hard feedbacks. Then you continue to improve it, and you, you improve it over China's speed. Improve it very quickly. So that that's that's how the nation is 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 operated, in a way. Um, trial and error. Put you, uh, introduce your products and services, even when they're just seventy percent ready. Put them out there in the market. Test it with your real consumers. Consumers will embrace it. They will give you feedback, but they will also expect you to continuously improve it. And once you improve it to their liking, they're hooked. Just like what WeChat is, has been doing in the last, I don't know, eight years. It's just fascinating. I mean, it's like no one else stands a chance. I mean, it's because it's it's a combination of so many different factors. You have the embracing, uh, very honest consumers, it seems like, and then you have the government setting a very, very clear direction, mm -hmm. and then you have all these companies in all these counties and villages really, like, driving for AI and innovation and startups within their within their smaller communities. I, I mean, I recently got a Huawei phone, mm. uh, and I have become so fascinated with it. Uh, mm -hmm. I love it. Um, mm -hmm. And and I've been collaborating with them uh, for the past few weeks, oh, just for uh, you. full transparency. Excellent. Um, but one of the things that really fascinates me is the speed at which they're able to release a new world-leading phone mm. twice a year, which mm. is one more phone than everyone else is I able know. to do. <laughs> um, and uh, it seems to be the case with kind of all innovation uh, from China. You run twice as fast as everyone else. Mm. And and then you said on stage today, I think you did at least, I, I, didn't, I wasn't there to hear it, but I saw that someone um, posted on social media that China has about 4 million university grads majoring in math, tech, and engineering every year, mm -hmm. which is obviously just slightly less Five than the population. Five million, actually. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, exactly. That's your talent pool. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I guess my question is, so it's, it's the mindset, it's the government, it's the people. I mean, what... How how can is this unique to China's culture? I mean, is this is, is this a part of kind of like your history, or is this something that other countries, like for example Norway, could learn and kind of do the same? Is that even possible? Or yeah. I I don't I personally don't think it's unique to China, uh, but because of course China is a one party state, it, it, it's it's political system. Uh, sort of dictate that the government has to set the direction. And the government has been very effective making sure that direction is cascaded down, right? But I think that um, going out there, try and error, is not unique to China. If you look at uh, a Eastern European country called East Estonia, they are a you know they are the success examples and stories by a lot of business uh, uh, school in the world about how they adopted a new technology. They, they just decided to skip several generations of mobile technology and went straight to 4G when the first you know, leadership took, took over and set the, company, uh, set the country independent. They went straight to 4G and they adopted a blockchain. And when they first done it, it uh, the entire nation is under the experiment mood and mentality. That's what they've done and that's why they're so successful. They're probably the most digital nation in the world today, even more so than China. All their um, uh, citizens' uh, records are on blockchain at the national level. 
And every platform to operate in, uh, in Estonia, you need to get consumers' permission. Consumer can see how their data is being used. So, I mean, it's a small nation. It's not big. But it's that, you know, that's just be bold and let's go out and try. They probably done even better than China has in terms of embracing the technology. So, no, I don't think that's unique to China. But I think it does take the government uh, and the leadership in all sectors, you know, government, private sector, what have you. It does take the courage of these people to wanting to go out and make that first move and embrace failure, allow mistake, and help help yourself and help your people rise from mistake and move on and mm. move on quickly. Mm. I, I think that that's something that not a lot of nations are willing to do and not a lot of the uh, business leadership feel safe of doing. Now, now I think that that's something that I think a lot of nations and business leaders need to learn and need to embrace. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, it's like you say, it takes a lot of courage because it's basically such a new world. You don't really know what's on the other side. You don't know, really know how people are going to react. You don't know kind of, I mean, there's so many unknowns and you kind of have to be trusting of the unknown. Yeah, and, innovation and itself is unknown territory and you don't know what you don't know. Exactly. If you don't know, I'll try. You still don't know what you don't know, you know. So I think I think try and error will get you much closer to the unknown, and then maybe make it become known to you. So on the the note on, uh, of unknown, uh, <laughs> there's there is a growing concern with privacy and mm. security, mm. a topic that seems to be relevant when discussing kind of AI and and China. Uh, and there have been a lot of news articles in the media highlighting the ways that government use big data analysis and facial recognition and mass surveillance to govern its citizens. And, for example, uh, you know, the, the social credit score, which is set to standardize the assessment of citizens' business, economic and social reputation. So in principle, each citizen gets a scoring based on how they behave in society and they're met with rewards or punishments according to their behavior. Their score is determined by their social profile, location, friends, health records, insurance, messages, finance gaming duration, smart home statistics, <laughs> preferred newspapers, shopping history, and dating behavior. I mean, we, we're not going to like discuss this in depth because it would take all of the interview. But <laughs> but how do you feel about this? And, and what's your sense of like, how does the Chinese relate to these issues? How concerned are they with the, how their data is, mm. is being used? Um, I think, first of all, I think we have to understand how challenging it is to manage a country with 1.4 billion people. Mm. And uh, 1.4 billion people are scattered around in this massive... It's, it's pretty much like one European continent. That, that's how big the country is. And also China, compared to a lot of the Western civilization, the new China is still a new, uh, relatively young country. There are a lot of growing pains. For instance, in the business practice, no business pays, pay their sort of cont- pay according to the contract payment term. Nobody pays on time. So it creates a lot of inefficiency. It creates a lot of, I guess, misconduct, bad behaviors in the corporate sectors. Um, and people you know, will be bullied on, on social, a social platform. Um, so I think for the central government, they, they understand and they have seen the growing pains. They have to find a more effective ways to correct those behaviors. And has to be happy, it has to be so effective that you see that behavior is being corrected almost immediately. People see the impact. Um, so I think the social credit system is, is, is one of the new systems they're also experimenting. 
But I, but I tell you, it has created some very interesting impact in the business world. Because to a lot of the you know business that let's say if you are so uh, a, a legal representative of a business in China, if so happen your business uh, paid late and you got law, going through a legal action, and you got uh, you know confirmed by the law that you're in the wrong, the legal representative will be on record, and if you don't correct that uh, wrong behavior and you don't pay back the debt, you don't clear your name. The legal rep, you cannot travel in by plane. You cannot travel by train. You can only drive. You, you, you can imagine how much difficulty it has put to this legal representative in sort of trying to manage his business on a daily basis. And it's immediately you have to pay back the debt that you owe. I think it's just setting the right, the right behavior. I think the, what the government is doing is it's, it's extreme measure. But when you're trying to get the message out to the 1.4 billion people, even about jaywalking, mm. you, I think it probably so far is, I wouldn't say the best, but the probably the most effective way of getting that message across. Um, I don't know how long this system is, is going to be live or on, but I personally think that it's so far the, the most effective way the government has identified to, to get the message across that, we are a big nation now. We need to start behaving like a civilized society. We need to start behaving like the world's second largest power and economy in the world. We are not going to continue to tolerate misbehavior like spitting, like late payment, um, like bullying uh, and, and, and theft and all that. I, I think they're trying to get the message across. So I would say that internally, domestically in China, we haven't seen any protest among consumers against the system, and they just went along with it. They went along with it. Um, I think they—they they, mo- most people know that this is for the best interests of the country. Um, so we—we we, at least we haven't heard or read any write-up about people protesting about this this uh, system or, or, or what. But um, I guess if they protested, that might affect their score. Probably. <laughs> But there are other ways that Chinese consumers can find ways to get their message across if you don't okay. like the system. So I think in general, the atmosphere in China is people cannot complain about what they have today. I mean, it's a good life compared yeah. to, say, 40 years ago. And it takes a competent government to take where they are today. So there's a lot of trust between you know people and, and the Chinese government. So if this is the best way the government can find to govern or to rule a big country like this, they must have good reason. Let's just play along with this and see what happens. I think that's a general atmosphere. Interesting. And so the jaywalking thing, I mean, what happens if you jaywalk? There, in many, many cities on the, jay, on the intersection, they have big screens, LED ball. They will catch you on camera and they will post the, the photo of you jaywalking. And because you know, it's all facial recognition, it's all in the back end, right? In some cities, if they're sophisticated, they can identify your name and your ID number, so they can't get wrong. So you're actually probably shame, <laughs> in a way. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So if you go online and search, and you actually find a lot of photos and videos about people being caught jaywalking, and their name, their photos in some cases, their ID numbers are up. 
on wow. the public. I think I actually read about that. There was a there was a bus that had like a a, a picture on it or something, and then the person that was on the picture was uh, was caught on this ca- shaming camera. But yes. it's crazy. But then and then your like score goes down, I guess. And but are you able to to build your score back up? I mean, how's it, how does it work? You can. I mean, I mean that's how the system works, right? So if you... So you're not stuck somewhere. You're like. not, you're not. But like I said, you, you once you're clear, you're dead, and then you go to the court and then clear that record, you, you're back on your clean slate. Yeah, so you, you always got chances. You're not, like, fixated for life. It's, that's not how it works. And I know that some people have already started onboarding on it. Are are you on it yourself? Well, it's it's not it's not something that you are asked for permission. You, you're on it. Oh, <laughs> have you seen your own score? Yeah, I have. Uh, is it good? So far, so good. <laughs> so far, so good. I've been okay. buying the right stuff, and I haven't bullied <laughs> anyone. I haven't criticized the government. I gave productive, constructive advice. And so far, so good. Well, this interview might, uh, might uh, heighten your score. Well, I hope. Yeah, because I mean, uh, because uh, no, I mean, this is. Uh, the, I'm definitely very positive to China, even though uh, it is. You know, it's a different kind of way of ruling um but we uh who knows what's right right i mean the unknown is the unknown yeah but uh another thing that i wanted to discuss with you is social media uh wechat seems to be very frequent for the chinese people just like a bank card is for norwegians or scandinavians in Mm -hmm. general um but for our listeners that don't know wechat you you briefly described it in the beginning uh it's an app that basically bundles every single service that you need uh, banking and taxi and food and flights and hotels and everything uh, how did WeChat become so incredibly popular in China when the rest of the world is still stuck on Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook? <laughs> now, first of all, a lot of the uh, platforms that you're using in the West are not available in China. Uh, yeah. They're all blocked. But they use uh, VPNs, no? To get uh, yeah, yeah. Some but yeah. sometimes the VPN, like that, like the, the last two weeks, the VPN will get caught because we have a big Congress happening in China. So the control is tightened. Oh. So VPN won't work. <laughs> okay, so it's, <laughs> it's hard to use these platforms then if you don't know when you can use them. Yeah. Yeah, and also, um, uh, unless people like you know my, like myself, we travel around the world. We have friends all over the world, and the international platform makes sense, right? But for majority of the Chinese, their social circles is in China, and Chinese in China. So to them, their first choices of of of, of course is the Chinese uh, system. So WeChat first started as a, as a instant messenger and a social media. To be very frank with you, I mean it's nothing original. It, it's probably a copy of WhatsApp to start with. But what the, the parent company called Tencent, what they're fantastic about and they're very good at is they they, they put this out and then they, they closely monitor how users use that platform. Then they wanted to put, provide more services to get users hooked even deeper with your platform. In the end, the opportunity cost of leaving your platform is going to be so high. This is not the first time they did it. They actually did the same sort of hook uh, 20 years ago with a, also a social media called QQ. Oh. That was the PC age. So QQ also was a, a copy of Microsoft's uh, Messenger, to be a very frank. So you uh, you sign up to QQ and you have a number. That number then is the is your key to get into all the other uh, off- offering that Tencent offered you, QQ users, for instance, you want to buy the avatar decoration, you use that number. Uh, you want to go on to gaming, that's the user you use to lock in, use that number. So you, you, you have that, they bundle what you need back then already with that QQ. It's a, but that's a PCH. Now, when they launched WeChat in 2011, 
China's mobile uh, penetration is already very high, so people are on mobile. So they started off with a mobile instant messenger and a social media. But they very quickly realized how hooked people are. You know, they're spending a lot of time on their platform. So they just repeat what they did 20 years ago. Why don't we provide more and more, just introduce more and more feature that are relevant to our users' everyday life? And therefore, they want to spend more time and longer time and locking more frequently into our app to do those everyday chores, transferring money to friends. So we do our basic you know, banking features or uh, needs on WeChat. Call taxi, call your lunch boxes, split the bill if you go to uh, go Dutch with your friends on a dinner. You know, you name it. We do pretty much everything. So that's what they've done, and now it's it's a super app. So WeChat is more than just social media. It, you you need WeChat to do a lot of things. This is what Tencent is very good at, and I think that that sort of you know study. Your what your users are, uh, you how their users are using your, and then try to understand what your users might need outside of the core, and then try to bundle that with your platform. That's something that Tencent is very good at, and I think a lot of the other companies, like Facebook, they missed it because they're they're very fixated on you know making my social media work and work really well, and I want to I want that global user uh, base. Um, so they have. They haven't actually gone beyond social like Tencent has. Even your, you need two apps for Facebook and Facebook Messenger. Mm. That's to us is ridiculous. Yeah, you have to switch between the two. But we just do do it in one super app. Mm. So um, that's that's why we're so hooked. Yeah, I mean, I can understand. It seems very convenient. Uh, I guess there is uh, more data or like privacy or power concern in Europe in terms of like is it even like Google and Facebook are questions a lot in in the rest of the world if they have too much power which many may argue that they do mm-hmm. um, so I guess there's there's some questions to that but then um, I want to talk a little bit about like the the future uh, and how China envisions that or how you think that uh, that uh, certain things are going to look like in China because uh, China has a a rumor, at least, for copying innovation. Uh, <laughs> but then they, they seem to take the basic concept that they copy and then they make them a lot better and a lot faster. Mm. Uh, for example, mobile payments, which mm-hmm. we've been talking about. Uh, what does the future of payments look like? Uh, what comes after mobile payments in China? Um, at the moment, we can pay by, by using our face. Really? Yeah. So, say, K- Kentucky Fried Chicken in Hangzhou, um, they have uh, in one of their restaurants in Hangzhou where Alibaba is headquartered. So they join hand with Alibaba to introduce pay, facial recognition, pay by facial recognition, pay by with your face, basically in that restaurant. So you did your normal ordering, and because you 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 bundle your account already right with it back end. So account that you use facial recognition, they can recognize your face and you just pay with it. And in my speech, I use another example. It's in a tech company's like a staff cafeteria. You just, uh, you know, like like today in the conference, you have a tray of food selections, right? You just put put your tray under this camera. So the camera uses image recognition to recognize the food that you picked up, so they know the price. And then just you just pay by looking at the camera. So there's in between. There's no need to take out your phone or to credit card. Nothing. You just do one time sign up bundle your back end and then you just pay by face so I think pay by facial recognition is the next things um, we probably don't need our mobile phone very soon because <laughs> everywhere you go you can just use your face recognition to 
to activate what you want to do. It's almost weird to think that we don't have that already because you do have like certain, I mean, if you think of mobile payments in terms of like at least Apple Pay, you do pay by your by your finger. Face. I mean, you yeah, you kind yeah, of use that or your face or whatever. Yeah. Um, but then you haven't kind of eliminated that middle uh, man <laughs> that's the phone mm. um but uh, wow that's that's uh, fascinating and so cool that you guys have already got it there um yeah. but i think that's 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 the beauty of china i mean it, it's a very friendly environment in terms of trying out new things yeah like i said consumers just would like to embrace it and i guess that's that's like the ultimate secret sauce too <laughs> the, the <laughs> speed of innovation that you have as well uh but i can imagine that uh very many listeners are excited to hear how they could survive the chinese market as an entrepreneur because china is obviously a very attractive market to many people or entrepreneurs because you know the size and the maturity and obviously as we've talked about the adaptability I read online that it should not. Uh, there, you said uh, that it should not be taken flippantly. And I quote: First of all, you need to know that China, for some reason, is always filled with anxiety. Uh, whether you're running a big business or you're running a startup, everybody's anxious, and that anxiety can sometimes kill you. What drives this anxiety, and, and is that special to China, or is that any business leader or entrepreneur? I think, think that anxiety is particularly strong in China. And like I told you, it's that speed thing. That speed, actually, if you're if you're not on par with that speed that speed could kill you because you think you're innovate, innovative today tomorrow there'll be the next innovator who will innovate something that make you out irrelevant and outdated so the reason why you know earlier on you said chinese companies copied the original concept from from the west but they quickly evolve it i think that's that anxiety drive them they they have to stay relevant to chinese consumers and they are out there constantly trying out new features if this feature doesn't work Pack it up, put it behind us, move on to the next one. Don't hang on to it. Don't allow it to become your legacy. I, I, I think that's uh, the you know the, the speed created that anxiety among among any companies. To be honest, it's just not not just a small company. Big companies suffer from that anxiety too. So it, it's a tough market. It's not easy. Um, how do you conquer China? Um, the, the biggest mistake any companies will, will the, when it comes to think of China is, oh, this is one big market. I'm gonna take it all. Uh, w- you know, wouldn't that be great if 1.4 billion people all have one can of soda a, a day? Or, you know, that's 1.4 billion. It's not gonna work like that. You need to chunk it down. You need to chunk it down to a site a manageable bite. And what 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 is that bite? Is that sizable? Uh, is that sizable bite? first-tier cities in Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, and Shenzhen? Or they are, are they are, they're probably in lower-tier cities? Because you've got you know, wealthy Chinese scattered around China. They're not just in Beijing, Shanghai. They're everywhere. So you don't have to be fixated onto, I, I need to start my business in China. No, you can start your business in Chengdu, which is the Latin America of China. Their spending pattern is even better than Shanghai. They, they earn 11 RMB, they spend 10. And their cost of living is a lot lower than Shanghai. So they have a much bigger consumption power. So what is that manageable size and bite of China that you, you want to start? That, that, that's, the, that's the difficult question. A lot of people want to start Beijing, Shanghai, and Guangzhou. And that, that normally is the, the first big mistake because it's saturated. And you're faced with a lot of competition. But China is one European continent. There are so many sort of the Eastern European equivalent, new market, new frontier. Nobody has actually looked into it. So chunk it down. Decide where you want to, where you want to enter China. 
and move very, very quickly. Move very quickly. That that that's the key. Once you identify your market entry, I guess. I mean, I just started a, a business. I don't think. I, I don't think after hearing all of what you've said about China, it's it's incredibly impressive. But I just don't think anyone, unless like you have that mindset, are able to to run that fast and and compete. I mean, obviously someone is, but I don't think uh, I myself am. At least um, I don't. I also don't want the anxiety. I mean, how do, you, do, do does does China deal with that? I mean, that's not good to run around with anxiety all the time. Or um, I think if you, if you look at a lot of the document paper, uh, the government's uh, paper, you will see that the harmonious society is in the center of a lot of government goal and direction. Uh, the government is is aware that there is a lot of anxiety in, in China. Um, so believe it or not, you know, a clinical psychology is a booming sector. Because we do need a lot of mentor, counselor to counsel. Even Fortune 500's uh, business China CEO, they find running China much tougher than any other markets they've been to. They need a lot of counseling. So, you know, the government is trying their best to grow that sector, you know, clinical psychology sector. So, so to give people to counsel. And there's online doctor. They, they make sure that they made it as easy as possible so people can go to help when they need. Um, and then there's a lot of uh, you know, tax incentive, uh, talent incentive scheme, just to, to provide that breathing space, if you like, to mm. business and talent. Um, the anxiety is still there. <laughs> <laughs> the government, I think, is a work in progress, trying to find the ultimate answer to relieve uh, that anxiety. Um, it's getting better today, but compared to the, the, the Western counterpart, the anxiety is tougher is much tougher. So if you want to come to China, you have to be prepared uh, to work probably 10 times far harder than, than you're doing here. Uh, but if you move that speed and you find the right market entry, the return is going to be very fruitful and you're going to be a very happy and wealthy person. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess uh, that's worth uh, trading a little anxiety for here and there maybe. Okay. Uh, we have to wrap up because mm-hmm. we've been speaking for so long, but this has been so incredibly interesting, and I could I could literally just dig in your mm-hmm. mind forever. Uh, but uh, I want to I want to ask you something about uh, what is my passion, uh, which is uh, gender equality and women in tech. Mm. And in Norway, obviously, we are one of the most gender equal countries in the world. I think we're or I know that we are number two after Iceland. But we also actually have a long way to go, and especially in terms of women in technology, where there are less than 25% women. And I think in in terms of uh, founders that uh, are in tech, only 0.1% are women. Wow. Um, so I would love to know what this scene looks like in China and how did the environment focuses on women in tech. What What's kind of like the breakdown over there? And mm-hmm. and having been a woman yourself, uh, doing in a very successful career, um, a lot of it in tech, how what has that been like for you? Mm. Um, first of all, I think the gender uh, equality is an issue, but compared to uh, again the Western uh, counterpart, it's probably slightly better in China. In a way, that's a good thing coming out of the Cultural Revolution, because the Cultural Revolution wiped out a lot of uh, uh, you know legacy value gender inequality is one of them. And Chairman Mao Zedong actually came out and said women held up half, half of the sky for China. So he set the, the right tone and manner when it comes to respecting women. And women is 50% of the important force of this nation. So I would say in general, in the business sector, um, you see a lot of women 
uh, in, politi- uh, in political position, government positions, in the business sectors, like in the marketing world that, that I used to work in, 70% of WPP China's employees are women. And we have probably 60% of the company CEOs are women in WPP. So women are given opportunities to shine. And also because of the one-child policy, when you can only have one child and you're not allowed to know the gender of your child when you're pregnant, the doctors are not allowed by the government to tell you the gender. So when you have that only child in your family, you don't really care what gender that child is. The, the parents and grandparents from both sides will tell that only child in the family when growing up that you're the most important generation for us. You have all the resources, all the support from us. You go as far as you want to go and we're behind you. If you're a girl in that family, you know that you can go very, very far. You know your family and your entire support system is behind you. So I think women in China are given a lot more opportunity to go a lot more further. And they're not shy to to take advantage of that opportunity. So I think in general, uh, women are luckier compared to many other nations. Uh, But we're not there yet. And the government are, are, you know, pushing a lot of, uh, are doing a lot of things to, to make you know, happen even more as well. Um, so I think to be to be a woman in the business sector is, is it's good, quite a good time to be in China. Um, I see a lot of women around around us, and we see women um, not shy to to start their own business. Well, that's good. Yeah. So there's about like so for example in in within Link within Link is are there about fifty percent female founders in that cohort or it, uh, among our sixteen companies we have I think at the moment if I'm not wrong forty percent of our founders are women wow yeah that's incredible yeah uh, well, we didn't deliberately go out and look for women founders it just it just came naturally and forty percent are are women and is that I mean are is that because like we, we mentioned, uh, four million graduates in in, in STEM uh, subjects are fifty percent of them women as well. Or well, first of all, it, it, China also because of one child policy, we have a little of unbalance um, between men and women. Yeah. We have t- twenty three million more men than women, hmm. so we don't have a fifty fifty. So you're not going to find 50-50 in the STEM. But we have already high number of women in education. And it's mandatory edu- the nine-year education uh, for, for any uh, any child in, in China. Um, so I, I think of that out of that, it's actually 5 million STEM graduates every year. I'm not surprised if, if we'll five up 40% of those are women. It's already a, hot, a lot higher than a lot, of, uh, a lot of other countries. Well, so we have to learn your secrets then as to how you uh, inspire women to go into that direction because it's, um, it's a pipeline issue here as well mm. and uh, in many other countries. But, um, okay, we're going to wrap up now, but I have three questions that I uh, ask every uh, person that I interview. The first is if you could give yourself... Two pieces of advice. Uh, when you were 20 years old, what would you tell 20-year-old Bessie? Join a technology company. Join a technology company? Yeah, instead of sticking to one big group for so long. <laughs> okay, very cool. Mm-hmm. Any Anything else you would tell yourself? No, join a technology company early and, on. <laughs> and then everything else is set. Exactly. Okay, that's cool. Uh, what's your favorite podcast? My favorite podcast? Um, sorry, I, I've just... I, 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 I am not familiar with yours, right? No, uh, no. I mean, mine is pretty new. And don't feel uh, obligated to say this one. You haven't heard it. That's fine. My favorite is actually a one done by a Chinese journalist. Oh, okay. Yeah, his name is called Qing Shuo. 
He's uh, he's a journalist, and so he but he's Chinese, but he's always taken on a a very neutral view when it when he criticize or review or overview the overall economic uh, you know development in China. So his podcast is is my favorite. Um, and there's another woman. Uh, journalist from Taiwan. His name, her name is Sissy Chen. Her podcast was also equally. So these two are my equal uh, favorites. Podcasts. Are they in English or both? No, in Chinese? they're they're both in Chinese. Oh, okay. Yeah. So where should people go to follow you online if they want to follow your work? Uh, LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Yeah. So a lot of my professional works and also my point of view about you know gender parity, uh, you know uh, startup and technology. I posted on LinkedIn. So follow me on LinkedIn. I recently just posted. Uh, a, a post I got a lot of feedback, which which was if we were to start a male leadership conference, what the agenda might look like. It's a sarcastic yeah. uh, oh, wow. <laughs> reply to the that. female leadership. But I'm going to read that yeah. uh, immediately. That sounds actually it sounds quite funny to be honest. Uh, <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for joining us, Bessie. This was so interesting, and thank you for being uh, honest and uh, and uh, teaching us so much about China. Thank you so much. You're, you're so fantastic. You're such a fantastic moderator. Uh, I have so much fun. Thank your you. Program. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Future Forecast. Tune in next week for more interesting insights on technology, leadership, and sustainability with experts from around the world. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness. Talk to you next week.